Thank you, Ken, for the opening and for sharing those passages um, and for your prayer. And thank you to all of you for coming out in what surely is among the coldest June 11th in the history of Springfield, Nebraska. Uh, but it's, it's actually, it feels pretty pleasant to me. I've been, but I've been moving around, so I hope you're all okay too. Um, this morning we're going to be in John 14. So hopefully you have your Bible with you or you have a device that has the scriptures. You can load up John 14. Um, before, I, before I go any further, let me seek the Lord's help. Let's pray together. Our great God, we come before you this morning having just finished singing um, praise and worship songs to you in an effort to accomplish a couple of things. Number one, to magnify your name in the middle of our community, and number two, to tune our own hearts so that we're prepared to hear from your word. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be in our midst, that you would work through the scriptures to change us and to make us more like Jesus, and we ask for this in his beautiful name, God's people said, amen. amen. Um, since I'm unaccustomed to preaching while surrounded by distractions like uh, traffic and folks walking by. And some of you, it looks like maybe as much as half of you are unaccustomed to hearing me preach. I want to make it clear that what I'm going to do here, so maybe we can put your heart at ease a little bit, what I'm going to do here is just try to proclaim the gospel. Um, this isn't a, a, a political speech. It's not going to be a motivational message. This is not some veiled attempt to recruit people to Springfield Baptist Church. It's not a veiled attempt to recruit people to our Redeemer Lutheran. This is just an opportunity for me to tell you about Jesus. And so what I would ask is that everybody that's in range of the sound of my voice just stop and listen and consider and ask yourself if anything that I'm going to say here is true. Uh, John 14, 1, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, <laughs> he's, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Um, let not your hearts be troubled. I mean, the truth of the matter is, when it comes to a troubled heart, it's not something that we possess on purpose. Right? We don't set out like, ah, let me trouble my own heart. Let me be overly concerned about things that shouldn't concern me. The, the reality is that circumstances which are pleasing to the heart don't cause it to be troubled, right? So if you've got job security, your bills are paid, you've got relatively good health, you've got a full pantry, you're surrounded by a loving family or loving friends, that doesn't usually lead to a troubled heart. Amen? Okay, so when we have a troubled heart, 
there's almost always something we can point to which is the cause. Now, uh, I learned since I've now raised three children into their teenage years, all three of them at different times took the opportunity uh, after they learned to talk to flex their counseling skills a little bit. They would detect that I was down in the dumps or frustrated or something was going on and they knew it had nothing to do with them and they would come and counsel me with things like this. Don't be sad. Cheer up. Do you want to hold my stuffed animal? This is what, like little kids, when they come and want to encourage you, they come with everything they've got. And you can't get much better than a stuffed animal. We expect children to counsel this way, right? Then I've also discovered as I've gotten older, as we progress through life, and I hope and pray that this stops for you once you're in adulthood, but as we progress through life, at some point, someone will give us this kind of counsel. Stop thinking about it. Don't let it bother you. You shouldn't worry so much. Which is not only unhelpful, but as I've already pointed out, if having an, a, 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 an untroubled heart were, were a matter of choice, we would never have a troubled heart. We would never choose that. When I'm sad, frustrated, anxious, or heartsick, probably the last thing that I need to hear is, just don't feel that way. It's exasperating. So at least four difficult things have happened to the disciples when we come to this John 14, verse 1. First, in chapter 13, shortly after an argument arose among the disciples concerning which of them was the greatest, Jesus gathers them in a room for supper, ties a towel around his waist, fills a basin with water, and begins to wash his disciples' feet, which makes them intensely uncomfortable because they know intellectually this is inverted. The relationship should be the other way. We should be washing the feet of the one who heals people and gives people sight and gives people uh, um, life back, right? Not, not, he shouldn't be washing our feet. And then he clarifies by saying to them, what I just did for you is what you should be doing for one another, not arguing about who's the greatest. Right? Okay, so some of you remember that. Here's what I think. I think when we hear God speaking to us, and, and bear with me, I don't mean with an audible voice, all right? Peace. If you're hearing the audible voice of God, we should talk after service. Um, I'm talking about God speaking to you through circumstances and through his word, through the scripture. Right? When we hear God speak and he's telling us that we're not as fantastic as we would like to believe we are, that will trouble our hearts. I'm going to say it again for those of you who tuned me out, and not that I blame you, but I'm just going to say it again. All right? When we hear God speaking to us and he's letting us know that we're not as fantastic as we would like everyone else to believe we are, that troubles our hearts. Because we know that it's true. Second, Jesus predicted that one of the disciples would betray him to his enemies that very night. And so everybody in the room starts looking around going, who is it? Is it me? Is it me? Is it me? And then finally Judas stands up and like kind of awkwardly leaves the room in the dead of night. And maybe they didn't know for sure, but I think they suspected. Jesus told Judas, what you're going to do, do it quickly. Here's what I think. I think when we see something strange happening, especially when someone we love or care for is threatened by something strange happening, it troubles our hearts. 
I'm going to say it again because some of you tuned me out. I don't blame you. I almost tuned myself out just then. When we see something strange happening that, that, that unsettles us, especially when we see something strange happening to someone that we care about, it troubles our hearts. Third, Jesus warns the disciples that where he is going, they can't follow. This is in chapter 13. If you're sitting here like, I don't remember him reading any of this. I didn't read any of this. I'm just telling you what the previous chapter said. He tells them, where I'm going, you can't follow. So Peter asks the burning question, where are you going? And Jesus answered vaguely, again, somewhere you can't follow me. Unhelpful from a human perspective. Here's what I think. I think when someone that we love and care about is going to depart, and we know that they're going to depart, it troubles our hearts. Whether that means they're dying or that means they're moving away. Someone we love is going away from us, it troubles our hearts. Fourth and finally, there's this intensely awkward exchange between Jesus and Peter. Peter assures Jesus he will follow Jesus anywhere that Jesus goes. And Jesus tells Peter... Actually, before the night is out, you're going to deny me. You're going to deny that you even know me. What is the problem? That spider was maybe the size of a dime. Let's reset. It is not my fault that we're not getting out of here until noon. <laughs> Jesus tells Peter, frankly, that before the night is over, Peter will deny him three times. If God predicted your own failures before they happened, to you in front of other people, if God predicted your own failures before they happened, it would trouble your heart. Right? So then, these four things. Circumstances which remind us that we're not fantastic, trouble the heart. Circumstances of life which threaten somebody that we love, trouble the heart. The imminent departure of someone that we care about, troubles the heart. And the likelihood of our own failure, troubles the heart. Amen? So what does Jesus tell them? John 14, 1. Let not your hearts be troubled which by itself would be the worst comfort that anybody could offer someone with a troubled heart. My heart isn't troubled because I forgot to make sure that it wasn't troubled. My heart's troubled because things are happening that I don't like, that hurt me, that scare me, or make me uncertain. Thankfully, that's not the only thing that Jesus says. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. <clears throat> what you've just heard Jesus say is that, listen, this is important. You can't tune out for this. This matters. What you've just heard Jesus say is that he is the answer to every anxiety your heart will ever contain. We are troubled in heart at the end of the day, I think, because so much of what keeps us drawing breath teeters precariously close to failing, doesn't it? 
uh, the economy, inflation, and the job market. Who here is in control of that? People at school, kids. It's going to be weird for whoever jumps out in the middle of this message. I'll make it extra weird. Hang on. I'm just kidding. Kids, when you're at school, doesn't it seem like there are some people who wield social power like psychopaths? And you can't control them and what they're going to do with that power? If you're married, isn't it true that the love and affection of the one who you're married to isn't something you can control? You don't get to maintain the ongoing affections of your spouse. I mean, you can certainly do things that make it easier or harder, right? The well-being of our children. Uh, sirens never used to bother me. I got married. I started having kids. Now, every time I hear sirens, I'm like, oh, I shudder. Because somebody's not having a good day. And I think that could be my kids because, you know, they drive. I mean, there's, yeah, there's what will happen tomorrow. There's other people on the road. There's cancer, blood clots, your boss, neighbors, the tectonic plates and how they shift. We can't manage that. There's the pharmaceutical industry. Peace. I'm not going to. It's fine. The government, the water supply, a house fire, a heart attack, an infection, slip on the stairs, a drunk driver, a tornado, a lightning strike, a mass shooter, a plane crash, a car crash. All these things that could happen we don't control. And then there is our self. How many, how many times have you found yourself saying with the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, guess what? The things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I do those things instead. Like I feel that in my bones. How often are you faced with some moral decision and choose poorly? I'm talking about in the private when nobody's watching and nobody's going to know, you're faced with a moral decision and you choose the wrong one. Or you choose, you choose to believe what's right and, and you pursue what's clearly moral and then you suffer for it. Like it backfires. You do the right thing and it makes somebody mad or hurt or offended. And so you pay the price even for that. And then... Uh, Heart-troubling things have a way of accumulating. Like, they don't happen one at a time. It's, sometimes it's the leaking roof, the sputtering marriage, friends that don't seem to really care in the midst of an economy which seems like the Fed is gaslighting us and trying to destroy. Some, some frightening new pain in the body, a kid who's struggling, and then some evidence that you're a garbage human being all at the same time. Like when it rains trouble, it pours. And I would just ask you to come up, take the extra microphone, and explain to me how believing in Jesus deals with any of that. I appreciate those of you who are tempted for showing restraint. <laughs> A few minutes ago, I said that all anxiety is ultimately fear of death. Some of you are going, he said that? I did. You weren't paying attention. I said it. All anxiety is ultimately fear of death. What if that's the fear that Jesus is offering to tend? Let me say it again. What if the fear of death is the fear that Jesus is offering to tend? What if the gospel like, gets at the root of what's troubling us? Is that possible? The three people up here in the front think it's possible. The rest of you either can't hear me 
or I've got a long ways to go. What if, for instance, hypothetically, God is real, actually created you, really knows your innermost thoughts, and offers to love you? Let me roll through those again. He is real. He actually created you. He knows your innermost thoughts and offers to love you. What if that were true? Does that change anything? And if you're honest, you'll go, well, yes, sort of, but there's still a problem, right? And the problem is you know you. You've been dealing with you for a pretty long time. You can cut all the negative people out of your life. You can get rid of all the toxicity. You can shed all the dead weight of friends who don't really care. You can stop consorting with liars. You can reject the people who just take and take and take and take. And some of you have done all these things. Like some of you have written letters to people that you're never going to mail and burned them like in effigy, like dealing with some kind of emotional trauma, right? You've changed jobs. You've changed schools. You've changed churches. You've moved to a new town. You've gotten divorced. You've gotten remarried. You've gotten in shape. You've gotten wealthy. You've gone to therapy. You've gotten on meds. You've changed your diet, but you're still you and it's a problem. And everywhere you go, there you are. What if when you die, it turns out God's real? What if he's real in spite of what all the philosophers on TikTok and YouTube and the news and philosophy books and colleges tell us? Who, you know, I'm not sure how they know, but anyway, what if he is real? He really exists. And what the Bible says about him is true. What if he really did wrap himself in human flesh, was really born as a human, really lived for about 30 years, actually said all the things Jesus said, actually did all the things that Jesus did, actually promised all the things that Jesus promised, really healed the sick, really gave sight to the blind, made cripples walk, made the mute talk, made the deaf to hear? What if he actually didn't ever do anything selfish, never did anything wrong, never lied, never lost his temper, never stole someone's cane, Never failed to keep a promise and always said the right thing. What if he really did that? And I know the whole world laughs at us for believing such a stupid fairy tale made by men who were eating mushrooms and writing stuff down. I know that. But what if he really did love the unlovable, embrace the lepers, sit with the prostitutes, eat with the tax collectors? We're talking about the IRS here. <laughs> What if he really recruited broken people and changed their lives forever? And then what if they killed him for it? What if that really happened? What if they really did blindfold him and beat him and say, prophesy, who hit you? What if they really did flog him? What if they really did jam a crown of thorns down on his brow as a really funny joke, mocking his kingship? What if they really did nail him to a cross, naked, bleeding, thirsty, and racked with pain? And what if while he was hanging there, he really did pray, Father, forgive them? And what if he really did cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As something which I can't comprehend in the fabric of the relationship between the father and the son changed or was torn or was somehow broken. What if that really happened to pay for you? 
What if he really was buried in a tomb and on the third day, what if that tomb really was empty? And what if Jesus rising again is a declaration that there is forgiveness for your sins? Look right at me. What if Jesus rising again is a declaration that there is forgiveness for your sins? Well, that wind is something else. Would any of that mean anything for you? What if Jesus' invitation, let your heart be untroubled, believe in God, believe also in me. What if that's an invitation into relationship with the one who made you? And what if an intrusive sinful nature has corrupted the design and made it really, really difficult to believe that the one who made you would want anything to do with you? What if death, hey, 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 you in the blue camo, hey, listen. What if, what if death, which threatens, hope he's having fun on his motorcycle. What if death, which threatens all of us all the time, Come on now. Death threatens all of us. Now, when you're young, you're like, yeah, yeah, old people say stuff, right? But when you, I don't know, for me, it was about 37, 38. I'm like, oh, I am going to die, turns out, right? What if death, which threatens all of us all the time, had been overthrown by God and he rose victorious over our greatest, most profound enemy, on the third day. What if that happened? What if the reason Jesus tells us to not let our hearts be troubled, what if the reason he tells us that is because there really is a promise of life to come? What if by putting your faith, however infinitesimally small it is, what if by putting your faith in the person Jesus Christ and crying out to him for rescue, what if that tended your fear, your shame, and your guilt? I'm almost done. Verse 4, Jesus says, you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas, who's the most real disciple, said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Like Thomas is exasperated. He's tired of it. Jesus quit beating around the bush. It's his unbelief, right? But he thinks he's got a reason to be frustrated with Jesus. Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Some of you have been listening to sermons like this one for decades. I bet you've been listening to sermons from preachers way better than me for decades. You've heard the Bible get read. You've heard guys share little homilies. You've heard the Christmas story. You've heard the Easter story. You have done the church thing ad nauseum. And what you've embraced without even realizing it is this weird twisted version of Christianity that, that works basically like this. I acknowledge that God is ultimately moral and I am ultimately not. And so what I've got to do is try hard, really, really hard, to be more moral so that he'll be more pleased with me so that when I die, he'll accept me into his kingdom. And I'm here to tell you this morning, that is the furthest thing from the gospel you could possibly imagine. That is not the gospel. 
So you, you hear Thomas go, Lord, we don't know the way because you have tried it. You've done moralistic deism for decades. And you're like, this is stupid. It doesn't work. I don't have any comfort from my heart. I'm still troubled. And I'm telling you because it, it, it's, that's not the gospel that you've been doing. That's not the gospel. You throw your hands up. And you say, I thought I knew, Lord, but it isn't working. I don't know the way. How can I know the way? And then we come to verse 6, which maybe besides John 3.16 is the most well-known verse in all of John. But in context, it matters so much more. Listen to what he says to Thomas, who is sick to death of moralistic deism. I don't know the way, Jesus. How can I know the way? And Jesus says, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. And then he makes an absolute claim. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. So we get together on Sundays, right? Y'all get together over on, is it 3rd Street? And we get together sometimes at the high school, sometimes over here on Locust Street. And we sing and we, 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 we do readings and we, we hear preaching messages and some of us are here doing it because we really believe Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and, and there's no other way to tend your troubled heart other than by having faith in him. What drugs, drink, and all the wild world offers isn't going to solve what really troubles your heart. Someday, and it look, look right at me, it might be today, someday you're going to draw your last breath. And then you're going to find out for once and for all whether I'm full of it or the philosophers are full of it. And you're going to stand, I believe, before God. Your soul was designed to be immortal. So it recoils at this idea of death. Nobody, I don't care how pious you are, nobody is like, I'm comfortable with it. I'm good with it. I'm ready to go. You can be more ready to go than somebody who doesn't know the Lord. You can even be excited about getting to see him face to face and being just like him. But the soul doesn't want to die. That's why your heart's troubled. You must believe in Jesus Christ. Until you meet him by faith, turn away from your sin, and follow him, you will have a troubled heart. And listen to me. Five, maybe six more sentences, okay? That's like a short paragraph. Following Jesus is not a one-time thing. We're going to close with a song. Some of you might know it. If you don't, I would ask one favor of you, and you don't know me from Adam, some of you. The one favor I would ask is that you pay attention to the lyrics because there is a massive difference. There is a massive difference between coming to believe in Jesus and moralistic deism. Believe in God. Believe also in His Son, and be saved from sin and death. Let's pray. God, we entrust our remaining time to you. We know that you've promised your word never goes out and comes back without fulfilling everything that you intend for it to. I would beg you, Father, that the intent of your word this morning be, as we heard from our brother Ken already, a ministry of mercy and one of love. Would you soften hearts and minds in this tent 
so that those of us who've been playing the Christianity game might bend a knee freely and fully to King Jesus. We pray for this in his beautiful name and God's people said, amen. Amen.